Okay, podcast questions. We're going to do them now. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to talk about them. Okay. All right, question one. What are some criticisms of GDP as a measure? And there's a link to an article. And if you look at the article, it says, quote, Some people might think that a dollar of GDP is a dollar of GDP, no matter no matter where, whether that economic value add is derived from exports, consumption, or what have you for these purposes. But this is obviously wrong. Consider two countries of the same GDP, where one derives 50% of its GDP from net exports and the other 0%. The second one will have a much higher material standard of living, even though the GDP is the same. The reason is, in the next paragraph, export activity does contribute to the material well-being of citizens. However, that's already being captured mathematically when you're looking at expenditures and consumption. Like, the consumption category already um, basically includes the benefits they're getting from their exports. Because, like, exporting stuff lets them buy stuff to consume. So when you count the exports and the consumption, you're basically double counting. Right. So that is one of the reasons GDP is stupid. If you just like look up what they add up to get GDP, like it's often just kind of ridiculous. The article, I think that the problem is the article has like tons of graphs and charts and it's very long and stuff. But like what I did to find that just now is I typed GDP into the search box and it said there were 93 matches, but I just skimmed through them until it got to the point where it started explaining what was wrong with GDP. Or wait, no, there's a, there's a table of contents. And I clicked on, it matters how a country generates its GDP, which I found via searching for GDP, and then it found the table of contents, and then I clicked on that one. And then it immediately took me to the clear, short, two-paragraph explanation. So I think there's some sort of, like, skimming article skill that the question asker is lacking that would have helped them a lot. Because, like, the whole article is complicated and shit, but that part was pretty easy. Like, I think I know who is asking, and I think that they could understand those two paragraphs if they read just that part. Right. That's the problem. It's something is scary. People, people get into the game mode when they're reading, and they don't really understand what they're reading, and then they miss things. Even if they read the whole thing, they, like, don't miss things because they, they're, like, not in reading for understanding of it. They're just in, like, being lost about. Right. That, that's a weird mode. But they do it. I'm sure they do. Okay, next question. Why is it wrong to call the interest rate the price of money? Parentheses, according to Austrian school. Um, so I don't know, like, the Austrian answer to this offhand, like, like, you know, a common phrase they would say or something, but the question is really easy, because the price of money is how much you would have to pay to get money. For example, $1 US costs $1 US. That's the price. You can't get it for, like, less than that, uh, or more. There's no need to pay more, and there's no, you can't get it for less. And you, you could also denominate it in, like, other currency, like a dollar of US costs, like, a dollar forty Canadian or whatever. So that's the price of money. 
you could also like, I guess, I mean, price means amount that it costs in money. You can look at the value of money in terms of other goods, like how many stalks of corn it takes to be a dollar. But that's not the price in money because like prices are denominated in currency just by definition. And interest rates aren't a price. Like 5% interest doesn't tell you what it will cost you to get a dollar, like how much you'd have to trade for one. Interest rates are right. just a totally different thing. They tell you um, how valuable it is to spend money now instead of later. Like, how much reward can you get for delaying consumption? It, interest rates are about the value of time, like getting to spend money now instead of later. But it's not right. a price of money. I assume the reason people call it a price of money is because they're thinking about loans. And it's like the interest rate is the price you have to pay to get a loan. Um, but that's, that's not the price of money. Like when you get a loan, you would just pay back the exact amount if it was just the money. The reason you pay back extra on a loan is not a price of money. It's a price of two things. One is the time, like it's the price of having money now and the other person gets their money back later, which is what people, which is what interest rates are normally considered to be for. And then there's a second thing, which is risk, which they also factor into the interest rate they charge, which is right. the risk that you don't pay it back. So they have to also include that in addition to the time factor. So the, the price of uh, time and risk are not a price of money even though there are things you have to pay for if you want to borrow money. I find that question weird though. I assume that it must be some sort of like common question or something. Like I'm gonna Google it. It must be like something people ask like with those specific words or something or claim. Like, yeah, I just Googled it. They're PDF, the cost of money, parentheses, interest rates. Oh, here we go. Yahoo answers. Why is the interest rate referred to as the price of money? Then sound money project. No, the interest rate is not the price of money. Ideas, the price of money, blogspot.com. So yeah, I guess people are confused about this. I'm going to look at the Yahoo answers. Why is the interest rate referred to as the price of money? Answer is the best answer. If you wanted an extra one, hey, you'd have to get it from someone 100k. You'd have to get it from someone else. Hence, you're renting their 100k. Of course, you have to pay them back plus a fee for letting you use it. Right. So they don't really have an answer. Like it's just not a price of money. They just don't care what words mean. That's all it is. Like here's another answer. Interest is called the price of money because it is the price you pay to borrow it. But that's the price of borrowing, not the price of money. So these people are just like really imprecise and kind of stupid. Like that's the actual issue here. I don't feel like you need to be an Austrian to figure this out. Although, admittedly, like non-Austrians are just the non-Austrian is like the term for people who are bad at economics. Like, it's not like there's rival schools with smart people in them. Like, literally, anyone who's competent in economics just has like Austrian views, or or at least like one of the similar ones, like Chicago School. Like, maybe they get fooled by that or something. The renting thing is weird, like the price of borrowing money, saying that that means it's the price of money. People don't do that with anything else. You don't call the price of renting a car 
the price of a car. Like, right, like the price of a lease is not referred to as the price of the car. Right? Like, that, like there's lots of things you can rent. You wouldn't call it the price of the actual thing you're renting. It's the price of renting the thing that you're renting. Right, yeah. People don't call like, the price of an apartment rent the, the price of the apartment. Like, they know that buying... Right. Like buying buying a house costs more than renting a house, but they're different things. Like yeah, that's weird to me that they would do that. They don't do it with anything else. People are extra confused about interest rates. That's like a very historical thing, with like hatred of money lenders and shit, and usury. Right. About Austrians, to be more precise, like. There's, there's like, advanced Austrian theory, which is totally debatable and whatever. But, like, the Austrian school just gets the basics of economics right, whereas, like, Keynesians or Marxists or whatever just don't. Like, the, the stuff that's table stakes in economics that should be just, like, the basics for competent people in the field to start, like, building on is, like, sort of distinctively Austrian because some of the other schools are just so bad, which is a weird situation. But just, just things like the way that, like, Hazlitt's, like, economics in one lesson and how he opposes the broken window fallacy. Like, stuff like that is, is associated with Austrian economics and the other people just, like, fuck it up. Like, Paul Krugman, like, publishes NYT articles getting it wrong. And it's, it's ridiculous, but there it is. Like, he posted some, he wrote some shit in the New York Times about 9-11 uh, stimulating our economy, which is just, like, the classic fallacy. That like you know war makes oh. you rich because you got to produce so many tanks and it likes you know creates so much economic activity and like you right. know broke broke you got to rebuild broken buildings after 9-11 is like exactly the same thing as rebuilding broken windows so yeah what i mean when i say that they everyone should be like an austrian ec economist is not like their business cycle theory or something advanced it's just basic stuff like the broken window fallacy and like, just being a reasonable person about economics instead of, like, you know, Keynesians and Marxists and, like, let's redistribute all the wealth and let's, uh, let's stimulate the economy by, like, when there's, when there's, like, a shortage of capital in a depression, we'll just have the government, like, borrow tons of money and, like, give out tons of low-interest loans and all this crap so that we can create even more malinvestment, like, the, the whole, like, economic government stimulus thing is so weird because economic downturns indicate either you don't have enough capital or the capital you have is, like, in the wrong things, like doll factories instead of iPhone factories. Like, it can also be caused by, like, you know, government regulations that limit people having jobs, like minimum wage laws or whatever. But, and, like, high taxes. But, like, the basic things that determine economics is um, capital can increase the productivity of labor. And when you have downturns, there's not enough capital increasing the correct type of labor's productivity. And so you have to transform capital, like take a factory and change, convert it into a factory for a different type of thing. And you have to accumulate more capital, like save, consume less. 
And then the Keynesians, they, they see an economic downturn and they're like, we need more spending. We need people to spend more. Like they actually want to increase consumption. They want more consumer spending to quote, stimulate the economy. It's just completely backwards. It's, so yeah, the, the other schools are just sort of economically illiterate. Well, I mean, a lot of it is because they're Marxists, and if not fully, like at least in like major sympathies. So a lot of them, it's not about like understanding economics rationally. It's about a political agenda. And, you know, and a lot of them are authoritarians and they, they're trying to make excuses for government power rather than doing like an unbiased objective investigation of the truth. It's the same way you see with like, you know, global warming scientists. There, there's like money and other rewards with, uh, right. with saying what people in power want you to say. So rather than being like an objective scientist, they're uh, suck ups who, who do what they're supposed to and, and say what people want to hear, people with power and money. And, you know, that happens not just with global warming science and various other sciences or supposed scientists. It also happens with, with economists. There's people in government who want economic advisors who are saying, you know, the government should tax more. The government should solve this problem. The government should do this and this and this. And it's the same thing with psychiatry as well. Like, there are people in power and authority with money and resources who want certain conclusions to have some prestige and authority behind them, and the psychi psychiatrists provide that service. It's not about truth-seeking, it's there's a opportunity there to please people who can offer rewards. So can you see that's something that I remember learning in like high school, that if you wrote your paper in a way that the teacher agreed with, like when you were allowed to take, you know, either side of an issue, that if you take the teacher's side, you'll always get a better mark. Oh, when you say you learned like that, quality. you mean more like you figured it out rather than that's what the textbook said? Oh, yeah, no, they didn't tell you to do that, but I figured it out. Right, right. That, like, they mark you way harder if you disagree with them than if you agree with them. Yeah, it makes it's, sense. It's way easier to get a good mark if you disagree with them. Yeah, my, my friend had that problem. He was, like, the, the super high-achieving, very high-grades type. Who was always sucking up to teachers and a teacher's pet and and did very very well right. in school but um this one time he didn't realize he needed to suck up he thought something was an honest question and it was um it was about like which was better athens or sparta and he thought it was actually an open question so he wrote some pro sparta stuff and, and he got a bad grade and he was very unhappy right and I'm, I'm fully confident that his essay was approximately as good as his other essays in terms of, like, writing quality and whatever. Yeah. But but you weren't supposed to be pro-Sparta, apparently. I, I think from then on, he was more careful to suck up more thoroughly, you know? It was a learning experience. Can't have that happen again. So that, that was kind of sad. It's like a weird thing. The teachers don't admit that they're doing it, and I, I think they don't even know that they're doing it. Yeah, but teachers are super biased, and they falsify grades, too. 
like one of the one of my teachers just falsified my grade like like she like literally like averaged all my tests wrong so she could give me a lower grade or something it was just ridiculous and i still couldn't even get it fixed but it was it was because she didn't like me right so she like managed to calculate my grade wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Alright, next question. Why are libertarians and some objectivists frequently wrong about immigration, American nationalism, Trump, that kind of thing? They're wrong on a specific cluster of issues and often in a pretty consistent way. So I think the... the... I don't know what that means. What? You go ahead. What did oh, you say? I, just, I don't know what their views on those things are. I don't know what their views on immigration are. I don't actually oh. pay attention. A, a large number of them, not 100%, and I think less so with objectivists and libertarians, but still a lot of them, is um, very, very pro-immigration because they're just like, oh, freedom means open borders. Like, it's that that's all there is to it. They're, they're oh, okay. pro-freedom, therefore they're pro-open borders. Like, restricting the border is a restriction on freedom, end of discussion. Um, the objectivists are more split, because I was on uh, HBL, the Harry Binswinger list, and they had some polls, and it was like, a lot of people were pro-Trump. Then if you looked at the actual discussions, like, a lot of the pro-Trump people were, like, suppressed, because... Their, their fearless leader was anti-Trump and was, like, very mean to them and biased. Um, like right. the, the, the anti-Trump people and the pro-immigration people were very vocal on the list, so the, and were actually, like, just shutting up the other side a fair amount. And sometimes someone would, like, be brave and say some pro-Trump thing or, or anti-immigration thing, and, and they would get flamed for it, right. and then they, they'd stop debating because it obviously wasn't going to be a productive debate. Um, so that was lame. But yeah, I think it's just the thought process is, I'm pro-freedom, so we should have immigration freedom. Just like basically countries shouldn't have borders, we should just have one world with no government. Or something. And like anything else is like racial, racism, nationalism, xenophobia. Like what's wrong with Latinos? Like, And of course they, they don't buy like the protectionist arguments about like stealing our jobs. You know? they know that those arguments are economically wrong. Whereas, like, a lot of the pro-Trump right. people, like, don't realize protectionism is economically wrong and are just, like, totally okay with protectionist arguments. Um, and then, the but the people who know protectionism is wrong, these libertarian types, they also know that welfare is bad and that bringing in more immigrants to suck up welfare money is a problem. But their answer is just, right. you know, we'll then get rid of welfare. They, they don't care when right. you say, well, how about we get rid of welfare first and then we have open immigration second. Can we do that in that order? And they're like, no, no, open borders. You, you can't, you know, have anti-freedom now. That's not going to help anything. Like, they just won't think about it in a halfway reasonable way. Ann Coulter has pointed this out. Ann Coulter has, like, said to... Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I, w I could understand if they were, like, striving to eventually have open borders after we got rid of welfare. But to just open the borders now without getting rid of welfare first doesn't make any sense to me. Why would libertarians want to do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. 
They just want all types of freedom as soon as possible in any order. They're just always pro-freedom because they're principled. You see? You see? They're stupid. Like, Ann Coulter had this debate with them on a different issue previously. It was um, drug legalization. And she said that I will, I will allow, I'll be in favor of your drug legalization shit as soon as you get rid of all government subsidies for drug users, such as rehab clinics paid for by taxes. Like, first, first get rid of any kind of government welfare for drug users, including, like, you know, rent subsidies and shit because they're on drugs and can't get a job. Just get rid of all the welfare right. that where the taxpayer supports people's drug habits, and then I will be perfectly willing to work with you to legalize at least some of the drugs. Maybe all of them. Why not? You know, she's like, okay, maybe it's a victimless crime, but there's a victim as long as you have welfare. The taxpayer's the victim. And, and the libertarians would not listen. They were not sympathetic to that. They just want to legalize drugs now. They don't care. So she didn't get anywhere with that. It was not an acceptable answer. In the same way that I will work with you to open borders after we get rid of welfare so that immigrants don't harm the country and like make cause problems. It doesn't doesn't get anywhere with that. So we're bring in a bunch of people who would use the welfare state and also be able to vote before you get rid of the welfare state. Right, right. Yeah, that that's that's a concern. <laughs> Voting issues are not something they care about at all. Like you won't get anywhere saying that that you want to have any control over who who votes or whatever. Like they, they don't care about demographic stuff. Do they realize that like a large percentage of people in the world are literally starving? I don't know. And would like really benefit from like because I, I know one thing that happens is a lot of middle class people just think welfare is like really bad and that you have to be desperate to go on it anyway. Uh -huh. And they don't see it as a big problem. They don't see people choosing welfare as a big problem because in their mind, like they would never choose welfare because there it's so bad. There are people in the world who would literally choose U.S. prison over their current life. Right. Like a lot there are of people them. in the United States. There are people in the United States who choose U.S. prison over their current life. Yeah, you can find a lot more if you go, like, find, like, um, orphan Indian children or something, you know? Yeah. You, you can find, like, a million Indian orphans who'd rather be in U.S. prison than trying to not starve on the streets. There's also a lot of immigrants take, like, a big standard of living kit to come to the States. Like, their standard of living goes down when they go to the States in certain ways. In other ways, it goes up. Like, they, their kids get, like, a better opportunity, education. There's, like, it's less dangerous. But, like, I, I remember talking to someone from Iran when I was at university, and I asked her how she liked it, being in Canada, like, how she, what she thought of it. And she said that she actually did not like Canada very much because in Iran she has, like, a big house and a lot of servants. And in Canada, she lived in an apartment and had to do everything for herself. Right, right. I understand. And it was like, it was like a small, crappy apartment. And yeah, she didn't have anyone 
and I didn't, I didn't really, it didn't occur to me that that was, and that, but that's actually a big thing. There's a lot of places where if you have, like, any money at all, you get really cheap domestic help. Right. Yeah. Another problem with bringing in cheap domestic help to the U.S., besides welfare and minimum wage, is um, housing regulations. Like, housing in the U.S. has to be built to, like, higher standards than a lot of people in the world can afford. Therefore, it doesn't make any sense right. for those people to come to this country where they can't afford the housing until after they either have more skills so they can be, like, more productive and make enough to afford, like, our level of housing, or we could get rid of the housing regulations and allow, like, lower quality housing. Like, we have enough space in some in plenty of places. There's lots of space with cheap land. Um, but the, the building codes and shit are quite rigorous about, like, how safe things have to be and how cleanly and whatever. Right. And we Another don't want, like, 50 people regulation. living in one room. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want this overloading. Another issue with housing regulations is a lot of cities make it really hard to build new, higher-density housing. Right. Like, they, like, you have to get a lot of permits, and, and people literally protest them building towers. And they have regulations about, like, the building height limits and stuff, and you're only allowed to build high buildings in certain areas of the city. And then there's, like, single-family housing in other areas because you can't just build apartments there. And then these cities don't have enough housing. But, and yeah. people keep going on about, like, the rental crisis and how there's not enough houses to rent. But they literally refuse to allow developers to build condos all over the place. Oh, I was just saying they also don't let you do things like rent out your basement suite for your basement apartment, or they only let you rent out one apartment. They won't let you rent out two basement apartments or like weird stuff like that. This is why we need more immigrants to go home. Like, another thing that would really help with having more immigration is if immigrants would come here, and if they didn't, you know, find housing and a job, then they go home. It didn't work out later. Instead of, like, you failed to find housing and a job, therefore we need, you know, federal government housing plus welfare. Like, we don't actually have enough cheap housing and, and low-skilled jobs in the country for everyone in the world. So a lot of people should just, like, look at it and be like, well, I guess there aren't, isn't enough housing and appropriate jobs so I can't live there. So the, the other reason that libertarians and objectivists are anti-Trump and pro-immigration and stuff is just plain left-wing sympathies. That's another huge reason. A lot of them just like read the mainstream media and like believe that Trump is a fascist and, and a stupid idiot and so on and so forth. That's that, that shit is just really common. And a lot of libertarians and objectivists just suck up to the left wing like a lot and they want to like because like all the all the schools and intellectuals are so lefty and they want to get like recognition and prestige and get along with like other public intellectuals and be able to read stuff like the New York Times and like not hate it so they can get along with people. Um, and so that that pushes them like really lefty. And they hate religion, so that doesn't help. 
and they're really condescending and look down on the Trump voters as like really just stupid. Like, and you know, the protectionism doesn't help. Like they know better about protectionism and they're right about that issue. And so they think the Trump voters are just stupid and stuff. And, and it's like, okay, a lot of the Trump voters are getting a lot of their ideas kind of from like American traditions. And they're not just like these, you know, super rational intellectuals thinking everything through. And as a result of using all these rules of thumb and traditions and customs, they can be a bit prejudiced and they're going to have some mistakes. They're not perfect. But a lot of these people are like, that who are willing to be a libertarian or objectivist are very intellectual rationalist types who think they can think everything through and be so smart. And they don't have enough respect for like the American traditions and customs and values. And, and so they end up being actually a lot dumber than a lot of regular Americans on a lot of issues because it's actually hard to be smarter than tradition and like the American way of life and the American way of thinking. And a person who's just a normal American is actually better than the intellectuals on lots of stuff. And the intellectuals like pay all this attention to these few cases where they know they're right and you know they actually do have better ideas, but then they're getting a lot of other stuff wrong just without realizing it, without realizing that the, their sort of make it up as you go along approach is not actually doing better than accepting regular ideas. They're, they're way too arrogant intellectually for how much effort they put into thinking and learning and stuff. Like, I actually put the work in, like I read so many books and have so many discussions and so on, but like very few people come anywhere close to me and just how much raw work they put into being intellectual and thinking things through. And if you're going to put way less work into it than me, and you also probably have a lower IQ than me and, you know, aren't as good at learning and so on and so forth. Cause like I'm a super outlier, but any just, just raw work. Even if you're just equally good at learning and equally smart and stuff, most people are putting in like one tenth of the work. So of course they're not going to do nearly as well. If, if you, if you want to do like better than tradition, like you have to really, really put a lot of work into it. You can't just do it like lazily as like a hobby, like a minor hobby. So they're just overly arrogant and overly ambitious on that. I think a lot of them think that other people have put that word for them. Because they're not actually thinking through these issues themselves. They're like taking, they're taking the standard views and they're just like listening to some authorities, like the libertarian authorities or objective authorities in their mind. And so, so they figure that these other people must have thought about it. Right. That's really fucked up. And yeah, they're just like wrong. Like, like Ayn Rand thought about things, but you don't understand everything the way Ayn Rand personally did. You, you didn't learn her views as right. well as her, like not even close. And then if you go to like lesser tier people, like Peacock and Binswinger and Peter Schwartz and so on, like they are not as good as Ayn Rand and they did not actually think everything through greatly, perfectly, wonderfully. But, yeah. And you can see that in terms of just things like what discussions they'll have. Like, Ben Swanger banned me rather than have a discussion. He got frustrated and gave up. Like, what I would consider, like, way too early in the discussion to expect to agree with each other. Like, we're just getting started. We're feeling each other out. We're seeing what the other person thinks and, like, what the other person's like. And we should expect a lot more work after that to actually, like, figure out the truth and agree with each other. 
like we only discussed for like a month or maybe two, like two months max. I forget how long I was there. It was like one or two months. And and then he gave up and banned me. And like, you know, for the for the like level of issues we're talking about, like there's sophisticated stuff here. We were actually talking about a bunch of issues. The one we talked about the most though was like epistemology. Like that's a fucking hard field. You you should expect it to take a lot more work. And I was attempting to put in the work. For example, like I saw that there were misunderstandings and stuff, and our discussions weren't going so well. So I started being like, okay, we need to try changing our methods up a little. Like, what what if we try some different discussion methods? And one of the things I did was make a video where I talked verbally about stuff. Like, what if I talk extemporaneously? Will people understand me better? Like, what else could we try? But around the time I started doing that, they were already fed up with me, and they were just at the point of giving up and wanting me to be gone. Like, at the point where I was like, okay, this isn't working great, let's try something else, they're just like, fuck off. Like, that's, that's the level of interest and discussion they have. And Ben Swinger was just, like, literally, like, I'm not going to respond to your video because I find your accent difficult to follow, so it's too much work, I'm not going to bother. And then, like, a different right. person in comments was like, oh, I can understand what you, your words, fine, you were just stupid, so I won't talk about it. So it's not like the video is particularly ununderstandable. Like, some of the people could hear it fine. You know? Wait, but, like, Ben, ben Swinger just... Yeah, he's American. He's from the South and used to uh, slower talking, I think, is the issue. But your accent isn't that far off, like... TV? Standard American. I know. Yeah, like... I mean, I, re I really think he was looking for an excuse. Like, I think he didn't really want to listen to me, so he found the accent annoying. You know? He, he wanted there to be a problem. He didn't want to actually engage with it. Anyway, discussions with most people go that way, where it's like you feel each other out, you find out what's not going right in the discussion, like what you actually need to fix to make progress, and then they just say, oh, well, I guess it didn't work. Then they want to give up. Whereas I'm like, okay, we now see where we're getting stuck. Now we have the opportunity to try to fix it. Let's try like 10 different ways of getting unstuck. Let's brainstorm some things that might help us resolve this. But they, they never seem to want to do that part. He was looking at it from the point of view of like him being the teacher and you being the student. Then he figured like two months was enough work for him to like try to get you to understand that he was right. But like after that, it's not really worth the time anymore. That's so arrogant. If he's just assuming he's right, then like no wonder he has a lot of wrong views because he's not trying to learn better views. He's not willing to listen. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's what teachers do. That's from, and, you know, and, and normal teachers in school won't even take you that long. They give you, like, a little bit more time than normal. Usually they'll get 60 way before that. They let you ask a couple questions, and then they're like, okay, well, if you don't understand it, I'm sorry, I've already explained it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he runs, like, a discussion forum that has actual debates and stuff on it. Like, it's expected that people will argue not just via a question-asking student. But yeah, like the, the the other people like won't challenge him as much. Like he's not used to being challenged like that vigorously. They'll argue with him like a little, but they'll be sort of tentative and hesitant about it and say things like you're probably right, but I don't see how blah 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 and you know? 
they, they accord him like a sort of right. respect that he wants and expects. He's not used to like actually dealing with like a peer or dealing with someone who's like on his level or able to debate with him and like not defer to him at all and not be so compliant. I mean, I ran into that with like Alex Epstein as well. Like I criticized Peacock and he was like, you need to give Peacock the benefit of the doubt and be less arrogant. And I'm like, I am giving Peacock the benefit of the doubt or I'd be like much harsher. Like, like I did give him the benefit of the doubt, but I still think he's wrong. Like, you just seem to want me to just not, you just want me to like defer and concede. Like you, you're taking as proof that I didn't give him to, the benefit of the doubt and, and his, the respect due his station. Just the fact that I disagree with him and came to some negative conclusions about him. Like you think you couldn't possibly think he's like a bad thinker if you were giving him the proper benefit of the doubt and the proper respect. And that's just so ridiculous. Like, there's no way to disagree with these people and be listened to. Because the fact that you disagree is just taken as evidence that you're not being reasonable and not using the right methods. And, you know, I had, like, evidence about Peacock that's fucking damning, and it's public evidence. And, you know, Epstein would not talk about the actual evidence I had, where with Peacock himself saying in his own words, basically, that he finds learning painful, has always found learning painful, um, was a very slow learner when dealing with Ayn Rand, and um, expects that everyone else finds learning painful too, and also didn't really want to be a philosopher, and, and doesn't really like philosophy that much. Those are some of the things he said, publicly. And then I'm supposed to respect him as like this fucking genius, just like Ayn Rand, who's like the wonderful, great philosopher who wouldn't get anything wrong? Like, no. I mean, I think part of it was that Alex Epstein himself finds learning painful, so if that's damning, it damns himself, so he can't accept that as damning. That's my guess. I don't mean that, like, as an insult against Alex, it's just that, like, most people find learning painful, so it seems like a good guess. Right. But, like, it doesn't have to be that way. What disturbed me about Peacock wasn't just that he found learning painful, that's that he didn't see anything wrong with that. He wasn't telling people that, like, if they find learning painful, like, they could do better. Like, there's something going wrong there. He was telling them just sort of to accept it. Which I think is never what Ayn Rand would have said. Like, Ayn Rand, that doesn't sound at all like Ayn Rand. He said something in an email recently on FI list about not taking, that you don't take criticism personally or something. It's personal attacks. That you never did. The other people take criticism as personal attacks. Uh huh. I think that's related to finding learning painful. Right, but right. That that makes sense. Other people can't not take criticism as personal attacks because to them it is. You're you're criticizing something about them. It is about them. If you criticize them, you're criticizing them, and they're like very shy their like current perception of themselves and their ideas and changing those ideas is painful and criticizing those ideas is personal because it's criticizing them. Yeah, that's actually one of the things is people talk about you need to criticize the ideas, not the person. But like I don't really see the difference. Like there's a legitimate like lack of difference there. Because like you are your ideas. What else is there to you? You have like ideas in a physical body. And the ideas are the important part more than like your appearance. And like, I, I had this conflict because I got banned from the critical rationalism group on Facebook years ago. Um, 
And the reason was that the owner thought that I was criticizing him personally instead of his ideas. And I, I quite possibly fucked up in terms of like the conventional wording for how you communicate which thing you're criticizing. And one of the reasons that I fuck up that, that wording for communicating my intention, because I, I didn't intend it personally. I was just talking about the ideas. I'm like, oh, well, those ideas are authoritarian and so on. So I'll criticize them. That was like my thought process. Um, he not only thought that I was like attacking him personally, he thought I was doing it on purpose and it was my intention. Um, right. And one of the reasons I find that difficult is like, I, I, to, to a large extent, I don't see the difference. Like if you say you have authoritarian ideas versus you are an authoritarian, like those seem the same thing to me. And if you say, you know, the following idea is authoritarian and it is like a direct quote of what the person just said, I still don't really see a substantive difference there. Like, I, I see how that's, like, a little less offensive and you're, like, trying to impersonalize. But, like, in terms of content, it's the right. same damn thing. You're pointing out that this thing is authoritarian and that's what they are. They are an, they are authoritarian because they have authoritarian ideas and that's what being an authoritarian is. So it is, it is personal in the sense that it relates to a person. But the sense that I argue impersonally and don't, and, and that my criticism wasn't meant to be personal is, it had nothing to do with Matt personally. I would have said the same thing to someone else. And like the actual topic right. had to do with parenting. And I don't know if Matt is a parent. Like, so my criticism of him, his parenting ideas can't be personal in the way that I think about it because like, I don't even know if he's a parent. Maybe he's never done that to any child. I, I wasn't assuming right. he was a parent. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was not thinking about what his life is like. Like, my thought process did not involve considering what he has done in his life, what his life situation is, etc. Like personal things about him. I didn't know or care what his life is like. I was just writing about the issues of, you know, is this type of thought process authoritarian? Is this type of idea authoritarian? Etc. But like there, there's a legitimate issue where it's like what actually counts as like a personal attack versus attacking an idea that a person has. What's the difference? I think, I think often what people, that's what they say that they want, is, is for you to not make it personal and make it about the ideas. But if you make it about the ideas and you're clear enough in your criticism, they still don't like you. Right. It doesn't like, actually fix the problem. That's because they say the problem. Lack of clarity will make people get less offended. Like, the easier it is for them to not realize that your criticism applies to them, the less offended they'll get. Um, but like the more you're clear, for example, using quotations and saying, you know, my criticism isn't just about authoritarian ideas in general. It's about, for example, this exact quote right here. This is a quote is authoritarian thinking and here's why. If you do that, they start taking it personally and getting personally offended because it's, it is connected to them because it's a quote from them. But it's also like that's a necessary part of actually discussing the ideas. You you can make it a bit less One offensive thing. by like, um, you can just make up examples and like find quotes from the internet and try not to respond to quotes from them, like even though you're having a discussion with them, like that'll make it less offensive to them. But it also means like they learn less, they see what it has to do with them less. People purposely try to separate it from the person they're talking to. I remember once. I was being social with someone. I was socializing, and I, I said something about like astrology being stupid, and 
then I realized the person I was talking to actually did believe in astrology. Like, that, like, there's a difference between, like, Virgos and Capricorns and stuff like that. And I was trying to be nice and get along with them. So I was like, oh, yeah, no, you know, that stuff makes sense. I just mean that, like, horoscopes are dumb. Uh, you lied. And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, I did. I did. It was, it was many years ago, and it was in a, it was in a, a situation where it would have been very awkward. So, it, yeah, I did. I it's it's funny that that works. People are so like accommodating and compliant. Like, she wasn't like suspicious of such a convenient lie that w- wouldn't have been like that hard to detect I mean, that you might be lying. She might have been totally suspicious, but it was like enough. I was like at her house at like a child's birthday party or something. Right. And so she was the hostess, and so it was like. You're just supposed to not fight with people. And so even yeah. if she thought I was lying, I think the fact that I, like, it just, that's all people want. They know you don't agree with them. They have to know it. It's the same with when you parent differently than someone. They have to know that you don't agree with their parenting. But all they want you to do is pretend that you think it's okay. They don't. That's all they actually want. They don't want, you don't need to convince them. You just need to pretend. And, and people are used to doing that all the time. That's just how you get along with people. You pretend that they don't agree with them, which works totally fine, even if both of you must know that you do. Yeah, people, people like to avoid, like, overt conflicts a lot. They're a lot more okay with hidden conflicts. As long as they can gloss it over and pretend there's no conflict, they'll let a lot of stuff slide. At least they'll pretend to. They'll, it, it'll have consequences in the long run, like they'll invite you to less stuff. They, they won't like ever talk to you about the problem. Right. Yeah, I mean, we weren't like friends, friends. We couldn't do shit together like by ourselves. Next question? Sure. Alright. What are some really bad, evil myths about America relating to politics and history which are taught in school and what's the truth? Yeah, so for example, I was taught in school that U.S. foreign policy is like a loan shark. That, that is an exact quote. We were divided into groups in our high school history class, and each group was given a different foreign country. And then every group had to have the conclusion, U.S. foreign policy is like a loan shark, and then go into how we treated that country like a loan shark. How we abused them and mistreated them and threatened them and so on. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Oh, across the entire class, it was like, here's how we treated, like, seven countries as a loan shark. And that was a predetermined conclusion. So, wait, but you grow up in America, and they just teach you about how America likes people? Yeah. They just teach anti-Americanism in high school. Interesting. Yeah, my, the, the teacher was more lefty than my parents. 
my, my dad was like, you right. know, America did some not great things, but a lot of these examples you're using are from like, you know, World War II era. They're from the past. And like other countries, you know, had plenty of flaws in the past too. So like if you compare to like what other countries were like at the time, America wasn't particularly bad. Right. Even though um, some of the things that they're criticizing in the class are things that we would consider bad today, they weren't bad for the time period. And there are also a lot of them were things we wouldn't right, do today. Right. So, so there's a very biased perspective when they're taking things we wouldn't do today that we regard as bad. So like we've learned better. And then they're using them to damn us from a time period when basically no one knew better. It was very dishonest. We went to a high school in Canada, and we did not learn about how we were equal now. We did learn about some of the past stuff. Did you learn the how the U.S. was equal? Like, uh, we, well, we, learned, we didn't learn a lot about the U.S. being equal, but we did some of what we did was about how we're better than the U.S. Because, like, uh, the multiculturalism is the big one there, because the U.S. is like a melting pot, and Canada is a mosaic where we allow people to eat the culture and don't expect them to, like, oh, be I part see. of a melting pot and become part of our culture, and so we're better in that way. I remember oh. reading that. I, I'm super in favor of the melting pot. I think we need more of that. Yeah, I did say I've been to the States, and it actually doesn't seem super melting pot to me. Okay, it was I'm more, it was more of like 100 years ago. <laughs> it's been a lot less right. of a melting pot for the last 50 years, especially. Which I think is really bad. Another thing they teach in school is the U.S. schools is about slavery and how that was bad. Um, and I mean, it was bad, but like they put a lot of focus onto U.S. slavery. They don't tell us about like, you know, Muslim countries having slaves. We we never learned about the slavery right. that happened in other countries that weren't uh, right. weren't like you know Anglo countries, and they never taught us about. Um, they certainly never taught us about how, like, slavery exists today in certain countries. Right. Specifically, Muslim countries would be the main culprits here. They, they sure didn't mention that. Um, and they, they taught us about uh, internment camps, where we interned Japanese people during World War II. But they, they did not do a good job of putting that in context and teaching us about how evil Japan was to attack us and how fucked up their culture was and how it was actually necessary self-defense and so on. They just damned America. Right, we learned about the internment camps too. And we did not, I don't remember learning that the states also had them. I just remember learning that we had them and that it was bad and that we were sorry and it was really bad. That's what I remember learning. Yeah. People are so indoctrinated about shit like that that they just absolutely will not accept that there could be a different side to the issue. And, like, they will not read a book, like, in defense of internment and, like, consider counter-arguments and, like, factual documentation and evidence and so on. They're just completely unwilling to do that after what happened in school where they just learned internment was evil. And it sounds obviously evil to them. And that's it. They, they will not think about it. We also learned about residential schools, which was a thing in Canada. I don't know if that was a thing in the States. We put our, like, Native Americans into residential schools, 
I, I don't remember anything about that, but we we learned about the fucking Trail of Tears, where a bunch of like Native Americans got like forced to like move like a hundred miles or something, and a bunch of them died on the way. It sounded pretty awful and horrific and stuff, and I forget like why it was being done, and it may well have been like shitty, but but even if it was awful, like there's a very selective attention on like things we did wrong instead of what's good about us. Right. The other thing is, is that they fail to look at the overall um, standard of life and living for everyone in the country at the time. Right, like, yeah. They see it as something particularly bad that happened to the Native Americans, but they don't realize that when like white people move, they also frequently died and had right. these awful journeys. Yeah, yeah, like, for sure. Like, that, uh, the Oregon Trail was about? Yeah, hella people just died trying to move to Oregon. So it's not like, like, it's, it's not good that we force people to move, but it's not like we force them to move in a way that was, like, hugely worse than how we moved at the time. Yeah, 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 that's a good point. Another thing I remember from school is I had two different units on Islam. There was one in middle school and another one in high school. And and this was quite a while ago. And, you know, we, we talk about, like, the Islamization of the schools now and how how they, like, you know, teach all these Islamic crap and they have to not offend Islam and so on. But, like, you know, quite a while ago, already I got two units on Islam and no units on Christianity or Jews. And, like, one unit on, like, Hindus and Buddhists and Confucianism and whatever. It, it was very, it was very just like pro foreigner, where it's like whatever is the like foreign religions is what we get units on. Especially Islam got the most attention. Oh, interesting. I don't remember learning anything about Islam in school. I don't know if we did. Yeah, we we learned about like the five pillars of Islam, and we learned about like Ramadan and Mecca and the the pilgrimage and. Uh, I forgot the rest. I, I don't think I learned any of that. Yeah, we we learned that twice. Just, just in case we forgot. When I was in elementary school, I learned about Christianity and a little bit about Judaism. Yeah, no, I never learned about Christianity anywhere because I didn't go to like church or Sunday school. So, like, I just didn't know a damn thing about the Bible as a kid. Canada doesn't have the same separation of church and state issues. And when I went to school in Ontario, in elementary school, we had the Lord's Prayer every morning. So I said the Lord's Prayer in a public school, like just a regular public school, every day until, like, grade five or something. Oh, yeah, we, we did have the Pledge of Allegiance when I was in school. A lot of people are, like, mad about that now, and I think a lot of schools don't do it anymore. Because it's like, I pledge allegiance to the United States of America and the flag under which, I forget all the words, but it's, it's like you're literally pledging allegiance to, like, your country and your flag or something. Right. And I think like it ends with, like, one nation something. under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Is that the Pledge of Allegiance, or is that something else? Oh, I don't know. We had the Lord's Prayer and O Canada. And O Canada has the Lord's Prayer. 
Did you guys used to sing the national anthem in the morning at school? Oh yeah, that, that was totally, no, uh, we, we did not sing the national anthem at my school. But yeah, that, that was totally the Pledge of Allegiance. Quote, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, individual, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So it's explicitly religious with the God part. I think that's the main reason people are mad about it now and stop doing it. Rather than the part where it's just like literally an allegiance pledge, <laughs> which is so fucked up. Another thing uh, about uh, bad teaching was, like, World War II. I took a college class about, like, the causes of, like, war and peace, and, like, it was, a lot of it was about World War II. And, and we had to, like, learn all the different causes of World War II. And, like, on the test it would be, like, you know, explain seven of the causes of World War II. And they treated all the causes as about equally important. And, and so... They have the real causes, like, you know, Hitler trying to take over Czechoslovakia. You know, that's one of the causes. And then they'll have, like, five causes that blame the West. Like, the Versailles Treaty was too harsh. Oh, yeah, I remember. I heard that, too. I forgot about that. Which, which by the way, is a complete and utter fucking myth. The Versailles Treaty was not very harsh. Um, if you actually look at, like, how much money it was costing Germany and stuff, like, it wasn't actually that much. Like, it just wasn't that big a deal. They just wanted something to complain about. Right. Like, it was not impoverishing Germany. Germany was, like, actually powering up economically during the, the treaty years. It, was, it wasn't, like, this massive undue burden, which is just the reputation it has now. Uh, next question? All right. I haven't read this question yet, and it's long, so let's see. What do you do about having emotional reluctance to improve your ideas in some area. Like, say you have some criticism of romance, sex, etc., but you still have some occasional sexual desire interest, desire slash interest, although it doesn't affect your life much other than mental time slash attention. But you have some strong emotional resistance to trying to fully refute that desire slash interest. What is the best way to proceed should you kind of ignore it if it's not causing a big problem? Or should you pay attention to it, introspect, maybe read a ton about PUA and other related things, or something else? Well, my first answer is if it's not causing a big problem, then you probably have other higher priority problems. Therefore, don't pay a lot of attention to it. However, um, people sometimes underestimate how much of a problem something is. They can be pretty dishonest about how big a problem it is. So, especially with something like sex, where, like, you know people are hella dishonest and blind about it, you have to be careful just dismissing it as not a big problem. Like, it, it's often a bigger problem than people realize. It's like how um, Jordan Peterson talks about women who are, like, 20 saying they don't want to have a kid, and, and they're not honest with themselves. They don't right. understand themselves. And by the time they're, like, 32, they really, really want a kid. Like, that's what they most want in the world. Um, and some of them, like, admit it at that point, and some don't. Some, like, still don't don't admit that that's what they really want. And they just pretend they're, like, a rational, empowered, enlightened woman who's happy with her career when when they really do want a kid. Right. And, and that's similar with, like, guys who, like, try to talk themselves into not caring that much about having a girlfriend and having sex and stuff. 
like there's the whole men going their own way movement and like you know some of them have some success with that stuff and i think a lot of them like feel less bad about it than they used to but a lot of them like really would like to have a successful relationship with sex and and a lot of them are like you know scared and worried about it and they they have you know a lot of correct criticisms of relationships and correct concerns and they genuinely don't want a um a fully typical relationship with all of the standard problems. Like, they generally wouldn't like that. They want it to be better in some ways. But if they could have an actual successful relationship with some of the improvements they want, then that would be very fulfilling and they'd like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep answering the question, but Ingrak is gone now. That was Ingrak, by the way. Not her real name. Uh, so... Right, like the, the men going their own way and stuff. Like, they have some good points, and they have some valid concerns, and they might not like a, a super normal relationship where they, they had to be, like, really superficial and dishonest and blah, 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 and just, like, super sucking up to the girl and, like, really trying to conform and be socially pleasing. Not that it's one-sided, like, you know, girls also try to be pleasing. Like, most relationships, like, both people are really trying to go out of their way to please the other person. Um, which is, which is lame, but there it is. So anyways, they, they don't want it, like, exactly normal, like, genuinely, but, like, if they could figure out how to make it work and, like, find a woman who wasn't so superficial and shallow and conventional and, like, was better in a few ways, then a lot of those guys would be happy and, like, and be, and be really pleased to find someone who's better and be able to have a fulfilling relationship that they actually like. Because it's not like they don't like everything about relationships. They, they still like a lot of things about relationships. They, they just don't want the bad parts that they see. And they, don't wanna, they definitely don't want to put up with like all of the bad parts that they would see. Like it, just putting up with like a couple bad things would be worth it, but they don't want to put up with like all the bullshit. Which is reasonable, like, if you see that a lot of that stuff is bullshit, not wanting to put up with all of it is, is, a, is a completely reasonable position. And, um, and it is, it can actually be hard to find a woman who, who you can have a, a relationship with where it's not, like, all bullshit. Like, a lot of women you can find in the dating scene, especially if you're, like, 20 rather than 35, are, are very, like, shallow, superficial, looking to have a good time and party and dance and, um, and are very into, like, social uh, status dynamics and, like, social hierarchy and, like, dominance hierarchy behavior and acting alpha and um, various, like, social roles and stuff that, that are pretty bullshit in various ways. So, but, but not wanting, like, that, that kind of, like, you know, college girl is, is the stereotype doesn't mean that you don't actually want a girlfriend. Like, having legit criticisms of a lot of relationship stuff doesn't mean that you're actually okay with not having, like, any relationship. And, and the, a lot of people think that it's really hard to find, like, a way better relationship, and okay, sure, but, but just giving up because it's so hard to find a better girl is is not like really fulfilling and like not an ideal thing and a lot of people are like 
more unhappy about not having solved that problem than they want to let on and think about. Like people can be like really unhappy about that, but kind of suppressing and repressing it. And by the way, this is a lot more of a problem for guys than girls. Like it somewhat goes both ways, but um, guy, there are more intellectual oriented guys. There are more like antisocial guys. Girls are more conformist and more social in general um, and less intelligent in general. Not because, like, girls are genetically worse, it's just in our culture, like, guys are rewarded more for intelligence and mean leaders and various other things. And girls are more expected to be demure and not be conflict-causing and, and not be too challenging. And so the, the sort of archetypical relationship involves the guy being a bit smarter and a bit higher income uh, and a bit more, like, confident and competent and brave and stuff than the girl bit more assertive and so on, and the girl being more like a nurturing and um, comforting and emotionally sensitive and like, you know, understanding emotions and, and understanding social dynamics and those other types of skills. And so the specific thing about like not liking a lot of your culture's social memes and social dynamics and social behavior and courtship behavior and so on is is a more of a male thing to to dislike that stuff a lot of guys who, who claim to dislike it would honestly be okay with it if they were better at it that that's also a thing that totally happens as people say they don't like it but they're actually just bad at it and if they would actually study pua more and practice it and actually go out and meet people and just keep practicing and, and, you know, fall on their face and fail horribly for the first few months and just, you know, get rejected over and over and eventually get better. If they're willing to, like, you know, fail a lot in order to practice and then imp increase their skill, they, they would actually get good at it after a while. And then they wouldn't actually mind it so much once they were good at it and being successful. Like, a lot of people use, you know, that's superficial and it shouldn't be that way. It's an excuse not to learn a skill. But if they had already learned the skill, they would say, yeah, yeah, it's superficial, but, you know, it works. It makes my life nicer. And they would be okay with it. But when they haven't learned the skill yet and they don't want to learn the skill, they find that like a challenge and they don't want to, they, they don't want to face their weakness and then have to learn something difficult. Then, then they're all complaining. Oh, my God, it shouldn't be that way. That's stupid. That's superficial. That's shallow. That's not what I want. So my answer is, if you genuinely aren't aren't really worried about sex stuff and whatever, if it's like genuinely a small problem, and you have other things you care way more about in your life, then okay, don't worry about it. But but try not to fool yourself. A lot of people really do care about it, even if they don't want to care about it, and even if they see lots of things wrong with it. It is a big part of life to have a intimate relationship, you know, to have like a family. And not just a family like, you know, your parents and your siblings, but like your own family. And even, even if you don't have a kid, even if you don't want to have a kid, just having like a spouse is a big deal. And even if you don't get married and it's just like a long-term relationship, you know, that's, that's still a big deal. That's different than being single and alone and whatever. I'm not saying you have to do it, but like it's, it's a very common part of like our culture's lifestyle. And it's a thing that a lot of people really want. Especially if they've never had it. It's, it's hard to give it up if you haven't tried it. Um, you know, if you, if you like live with your girlfriend for five years and then eventually you broke up and you're like, you know, I don't really want to do that again. 
that's a lot more believable. It's a lot more plausible that you're like actually fine with not doing it anymore. Because you've gotten to try it, you know what it's like, and you can say, you know, I remember it and it was pretty good in some ways and there were some advantages and I'm glad I got to try it, but you know, there are the, uh, these other things that I didn't like about it and you know, I'm not gonna do it right now. Maybe later, but probably not. You know, if, if you're thinking like that, that's more believable, but if you're like 25 and you're like, oh yeah, relationships aren't for me, it's like, maybe you're fooling yourself. You're probably fooling yourself. And just because you're on FI and like, you know, oh, I'm a philosopher, I, I thought these things through. Like, you're still probably fooling yourself. You're probably not as much of a serious philosopher as I am. And, and you're probably making, like, bizarre assumptions about my personal life that I've never stated. Like, people, people make, like, weird assumptions about me being a robot and blah, 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 and without even asking. I, I've heard some, like, stuff that just does not match my actual life. So don't, don't do something because you think you're copying me when you don't actually know anything about my life. Like, please. Also, don't try to copy my lifestyle if you're not, like, you know, able to actually produce essays similar to mine. Like, thinking you understand the philosophy and actually being able to, like, you know, teach it to people and, like, write essays and so on of, the, of like, my caliber are, are different things. And, and one involves like a more thorough, better understanding. So, so if you're not able to actually like do philosophy like I do, if you don't have that kind of like visible, like you are actually succeeding at philosophy and being like really good at it and so on in public, you, you probably shouldn't try to like copy what I do given the skills that I have. And, you know, just looking at the list, I'd say like no one's really there yet. So you're not me, so don't don't try to act like it. That's not to say you couldn't be like anti-sex or like actually not that interested in sex or whatever. Like, you know, on some individual issue, you could do a good job and like make a lot of progress and achieve something. That's that's fine. You might have, you might not. The question mentions like strong emotional resistance to trying to like fully lose interest in sex, and and like that's a sign that there's something there that's like strongly important to you still. Um, so I, I would say, like, it's not that small an issue if that's how you feel. It might not be, like, the highest priority issue for you, but I, I wouldn't think it's a small issue either. I wouldn't think it's just, like, not important. Like, strong emotional feelings, including resistance about anything, is, like, a sign that's kind of important to you. Also, by the way, Jordan Peterson says, and I think this is reasonable, that if you have strong emotions about anything that's more than 18 months old, like if something happens to you and you, you feel bad about it, and you still have strong negative feelings about it more than 18 months later, then that's kind of a big deal and you like haven't coped with it well and you know there's an ongoing problem. That that advice is more geared towards like trauma or like, you know, very like negative events you feel bad about. But more than like an ongoing thing like not having a girlfriend is not like you can't like date not having a girlfriend to like this day i mean i guess you could say like oh you know i've wanted a girlfriend for more than 18 months now but i don't think it compares super well part of it is people try to replace like romantic relationships with friendships and you know there, there's something to that and some of the ways people treat friends are better than how they treat um spouses or their children 
or or their siblings as well, I suppose. Um, there's definite advantages to the friendship model. Like it's more voluntary. It's more um, pick or choose the individual interactions you want. It's not totally that way with typical friends, but it's like more that way. It's more like you can be like, oh, let's do this together because we both like it, but then not do that together because only one of us likes it. Like there's way more pressure to um, share interests with uh, like spouses or something. So there's good things about friendships, but they're also like, there's downsides to the typical friendship model in our culture. Like, like have some friends, but it's not going to satisfy like everything good in life very well. Cause like people, friendships are more superficial people. You know, if they're not getting along, they just stop being friends. Like there's a lot less pressure to actually like solve your conflicts and like deal with your problems. Whereas if you're in like a committed relationship, there is this pressure that you actually have to sort out some of your conflicts instead of just avoiding the issue and limiting your friendship. And, you know, pressure is not the best thing, but like actually trying to sort out some conflicts in a more thorough way, actually trying to solve some of your problems and make some changes. Like people are more willing to change for their spouse. They're more willing to like try to change themselves and better themselves and be a better person because something they're doing is unexpected unacceptable to their spouse then they're willing to do it for friends and you know that's not entirely rational and not entirely the best possible way to do it but there's something to it you know and it's not just that it helps encourage and inspire you to change and better yourself it's also that you get to have this friendship with this person who is actually making the effort to like change to better get along with you to be more acceptable to you it's hard to find like friends who are willing to put as much effort into fixing some of the problems as some people will do like shortly after they start dating. Like you can have only known someone for a few weeks and if you're already having sex and you've been on several dates, you can actually start asking for a little bit of relationshipy stuff, especially if you're a bit older. And so it's more of a marriage track. Oh yeah. I was talking about how, in relationships, people are more willing to try to like change to be acceptable to each other and to like actually fix some of their flaws, which is something they don't do very much in friendships, especially like shorter term friendships, like with like work buddies or something. You're not going to like, you know, change your personality to be more acceptable to a work buddy. Whereas if you have like a, a best friend for like, you know, 10 plus years, that actually lasts through different phases of life. Like not just a high school friend or not just a college friend, but like a high school friend who's also a college friend who also you're friends with after you get jobs at different companies. Like then at that point when it's like spanning different aspects of life and like you also stay friends with them after you get married because some people stop being friends when they get married. But if it, if it keeps spanning like different phases of life, then that's like a more serious friendship where people are more willing to like, uh, to, to actually like ask each other to change a bit. If, if it's, if you're not just friends through that, but you're like still like seeing each other frequently, because sometimes people stay friends, but they like see each other a lot less often once they're married or something. But if you're actually like hanging out all the time and it's like an actual big thing in your life, uh, you know, then, then it's more possible to like ask them to make some changes. Like, even if you want that and you think you're all rational and stuff, 
a lot of other people don't. Like, it's hard to find friends like that because, you know, they get married and now they care what their spouse thinks. They're not that, that worried about you. Like, they're happy to hang out with you sometimes and have beers on Friday night and, and complain about your jobs and, and chat about politics a bit and whatever. Like, you can find a friend like that. But, like, a friend who's, like, super into you, like, maybe not. Like, they care more about their, their wife and their family than they care about you. So, so if you don't have your own relationship, your own spouse or whatever, it can be hard to like just have enough like friends in your life or enough like people in your life that are actually like not very superficial. Like I've run into a bit of this just with um, trying to find discussion partners. Like most people, like they'll have some discussions a bit, but they don't care all that much. It's not like that important to them. And this, this is true even with like professional discussion people, like professional philosophers, professional writers like people who write like economics or politics articles or something, like even like professional intellectuals, um, including like scientists too, who like publish results and whatever, like they don't, they don't want to hear criticism of their paper usually and actually like discuss it to a conclusion and discuss like tangents, like philosophy of science, which are like super relevant, like go fucking luck with that with most of them. Like, a lot of them will talk with like their colleagues. They'll talk with like, you know, professional colleagues where they're like, they're sort of required to, like it's part of the job. Like like a random stranger on the internet, like they don't care that much. It's They're not really required to, and it's not something they were looking for. So if you, if you don't follow like the conventional relationship patterns, you don't just have to worry about your own ability to do something different. You have to worry about like the ability of the people you want to interact with to do something different. So like if I want discussion partners, but I choose not to get a PhD and get a job as a professor, a lot of people are like, what the fuck? And like, you know, don't interact with me. They don't get it. They, um, they don't see why they would interact with me. It doesn't fit into like their life pattern that they expect where they like deal with their grad students and, you know, deal with a couple other professors in the field and so on. Like the people who actually peer review them. You have to like talk with those people, like the people who go to the same conferences as them. They'll talk with like them a bit. But, like just a person who cares about the truth and like emailed them, they don't give a shit. That's not what they signed up for. And who wants to actually like argue and like keep arguing and like actually figure out how to agree. Like they don't know how to do that. They don't want to do that. That's not the relationship pattern they were expecting to deal with people in is very similar with like having a girlfriend or whatever. Like you don't, it's not just that you need to be able to relate in unconventional patterns. The other people do too. Like most girls you might find that you might want to be friends with, like they're going to get a husband at some point and he's going to be a bit jealous and they're going to be totally okay with that. And it's going to be totally disruptive to your interactions with them. And and it, it, with male friends, like, you know, they're going to care, they're going to start dating someone, you know, like you have a, it's very common that like, you'll have some male friends in high school if you're a guy. And then like, when they get girlfriends, they'll be like super into their girlfriends and like not see you very much for, at first. And then like, you know, once they get more used to having a girlfriend, they'll be able to like make some time for you regularly, but it's not like the same as before when they're dating someone or married you're not the priority in the way that you were when like you guys were buddies and you didn't like your families all that much. Like, you know, you're 14 and you don't like, your, you're not in love with your parents at all. 
you know, and your teachers are mean and you don't like school that much. And, but you've got like three buddies and they're like the best thing in your life. And you, you try to get along with each other and stuff. But, but once you have other things in your life, you know, your career and your work buddies and your wife and your kids, then that kind of friendship doesn't matter as much. And even if it still matters to you, it's going to stop mattering to the people you're friends with probably, you know, unless they become like FI people too, they're, they're probably not going to see life quite the same way you do. I remember listening to Jordan Peterson recently talking about uh, people need to be socialized between the ages of like two and four, he said, which I think is an exaggeration about like how critical the time period is and like psychological development phases or whatever. But like what he was talking about was like, uh, he talked about like some schools don't allow best friends. They think it's like selfish or biased or like, you know, not, not equality. It doesn't fit with their idea of equality. You're supposed to treat everyone equally, not have a best friend, according to like some of these modern leftists. And he thought that was super fucked up. Like you need to have a best friend. You have someone that's like more important than yourself. Someone, or if not more important, but like similarly important at least, where like you're actually trying to be acceptable to a different person and like learn how to do that. And that that's a big fucking deal when you're like three and you're trying to learn how can I interact with people so we can actually get along and benefit instead of they hate me. Like, how can I have a friend? Like, how can I do that? That's like a very important project. And it, you know, it's in your own interest to learn something about that project. And I don't think it's in your interest to be like a super conformist type who spends their whole life trying to socially please others, which is definitely a risk if you just get socialized in the normal way. But, but there's absolutely something to being able to deal with people like some and like how to interact with people. That's like, that's a thing you have to learn. Like there's plenty of rational good skills there that should exist you know that are legitimate even if there's like bad aspects of our culture that can also be picked up in the, at the same time there's a good part to it and and things like not allowing someone to have a best friend fucks that up because just sort of treating everyone equally like it, it it's a lot easier to focus like how do i get things right with this one person than with like 20 people a little bit each it's a lot more meaningful. It's a lot more like you're getting actual criticism and feedback when you're dealing with this one person and you get a lot more context where like you've told them all your stories and now they can understand things about you. And like having a person that you know in a more deep way lets, lets you like, you know, follow up on previous things, which is important. And that's one of the things you can get from a girlfriend that, that can be hard to find somewhere else when you're 30 or 40 or 50. It's a lot easier to find at ages where people um, don't date yet. Like before people date or date seriously, like up to like 15 or maybe 25, um, it's a lot easier to have like deeper, more significant friendships. And then as people have a family, then the friendships are less important to them. So it's like when you're three, it's like your best friend is super important. You're not ready for a family yet. And neither are the other people you might be friends with. But as you get older, even if you don't start having a family, other people do. So like a lot of the candidate pool goes away. Another thing Jordan Peterson mentions, which I think is interesting, is he says that getting along with another person and being like acceptable to another person is a bit similar, like getting along with your future self and being acceptable to your future self. Because in the future, you're going to have some different ideas, some different values, some different preferences and so on. 
And if you can act in a way that you're okay with not only now, but also in the future, then it's like okay to like from multiple different perspectives. And if something that works well from multiple perspectives, that's actually a really good sign about it. Like there's some reach to it, some generality to it. And anyways, being acceptable to other people and being acceptable to your future self is very similar things. It's, it's a way of being acceptable, not just from one perspective, but from multiple perspectives. It's a way to be less parochial and, and get some perspective on your life. So there, there's something really good there. And it's, it's not just altruism to carry what other people think and to like look at things from their perspective. You have to be careful about just like spending your life like trying to suck up to everyone and being like super compliant and stuff. Like looking at other perspectives does have value in it. And trying to get along with some other people in your life ever instead of just never getting along with anyone has value in it. There's another podcast question. This is from a different person. This is Kate Sams. Um, before I close, I want to go over this briefly. All the previous questions were from Anonymous, and they're all from the same email. So this is Kate Sams. She says, discuss key problem-solving ideas slash skills that you should understand and share with your kids to help them learn how to solve problems effectively. And then she gives some examples like staying calm, being optimistic, being flexible, thinking outside the box, finding ideas that work for everyone, criticism, fails, redos, rejections being an important part of learning and life, solving problems takes effort, breaking problems into smaller pieces that are more manageable, and practicing introspection. And this is all like super vague and abstract, um, especially like the question itself, um, which is why I'm not very inclined to answer it. But I wanted to like mention why I'm not answering it is because it's not just like a thing I can talk about. It's like all the questions from Anon were like you could think of like a specific thing and like talk about it. And it can like lead into some more like abstract discussion. But this is just like tell me all the abstract principles. And it's like I could like very briefly tell you like, you know, be rational. And then I could break that down a little more like what are some things reason consists of like you know, liking criticism instead of hating it, brainstorming instead of like getting stuck with and just drawing a blank. And then like, how do you do that? Well, you know, don't suppress your thinking, like learn to introspect a bit and like realize that you're actually suppressing a lot of your thoughts. And like brainstorming's not that hard. You're actually just shutting down a lot of it. But there are ways it's hard and you can get better at it. But there's also the suppressing thing. Anyways, but like you get lower in the hierarchy to get to like more specific things and there's like more to say about it. Like, if you just start at the top of the hierarchy, it's like, okay, well, that would take, like, you know, days to just, like, talk through and actually go down and break it down, like, break it down to the next level and then break it down to the next level and keep doing that. And it's going to be, like, so many things and it's going to take forever. And and it's, like, if I wanted to do that, I don't need your question. Like, I could just, you know, make something without you. The point of a question is to actually, like, you know, I'm having trouble with this specific issue. Like, I see the hierarchy as, like, this is reason, and then this is a part of reason, and this is a way I was trying to do that, and then I ran into this actual problem, and then could you help me get unstuck? You know, that would be a good question, because then I'm actually responding to this problem you're having. But this does not, like, put any problem the question asker is having into the question. It's just sort of, like, teach me all about philosophy, which is, like, I don't need someone to ask a question in order to work on that. It's not helping at all with, like, what should I teach you? What do you want to know? 
what is something that you're finding difficult. There's no actual, there's no way to engage with the person asking the question, which is totally different with the previous questions. Like just going through them quickly, like there was the one about GDP where they were having this problem related to GDP. GDP is like a specific enough issue that I could like say something about it reasonably easily and it won't take forever. And it could actually be useful. And it's actually like a thing where if I'm like, if I was like, okay, I'm going to write about economics today, you know? So if someone's saying, I don't understand GDP, want to want to explain that, that would actually give me like a lead that I might find useful. Like, cause I'm not, I'm like, what part of economics should I write about? Like GDP is an answer that could actually be useful. Or it's like, I'm going to write out philosophy today and it's discuss key problem solving skills. Like that is not a useful thing that's going to help me figure out what to actually specifically write. The part about sharing with your kids is like a little bit of a lead, but it's like there's a million things you should share with your kids. It's not specific enough. If, if the person was like, you know, I have like these seven ideas that I think are pretty important. And like, I think I should share this one with my kid and not this one. And here's why. And I think, and these ones, I'm not sure if I should tell my kid like now, you know, that, that would be more of like a question where I'm actually interacting with someone. Anyway, so there's the GDP question. There's the like emotional reluctance and like dating question. Like that one was like way more specific than just like, what is the FIV one dating or, or something like super generic. Like they, they were actually talking about something that sounded like a problem they were having possibly like, you know, changed a bit or hypotheticalized or whatever, but like it sounded kind of like a real problem there. And you could like understand a bit of the person's perspective. And, and there was like the interest rate and price of money thing. That was like pretty specific. That was like a thing I could actually Google and be like, oh, there's this common misconception people have, at least common enough that it's easy, like trivial to find it on Google. And like, I see what, how they're being dumb and whatever. And then like the libertarians and objectivist question was specifically about immigration and like Trump and like nationalism. nationalism. Like that was, that was a pretty specific question. It wasn't just like, you know, tell me about politics or tell me what libertarians get wrong. It was specifically like, why are they fucking up immigration? And there was the one about like um, things that are taught in schools that are like these nasty myths. That was like a little generic, but it was like, okay, it specifically is a myth that's taught at school rather than just any myth that exists in our society. And it was specifically about a politics or a history myth rather than just a myth on any topic. So those things like narrowed it down a lot and gave me like a question to answer. Like the person wanted to know more specifically about this kind of area and this kind of area rather than just like, tell me stuff about myths. Like if the question was, you know, what is a myth and why is it wrong and what's the right answer? I would not answer that question. That's just, you know, say something interesting is basically the like level of the question. So, so I wanted to talk a bit about why the question from Kate Sams is not a good question and why I'm not answering it. And hopefully that will help with asking better questions in the future. I, I would definitely recommend that Kate make her questions less abstract and, and like answering the question from Kate is like having a conversation with myself. Basically the other person isn't putting anything into the conversation. That's the problem. So one way that usually helps deal with that is to have spe more specific questions because then the person asking the question made a choice. Like I'm asking about this and not that, like they're choosing like what specific thing to ask about, which problem do they want to know about? Whereas Kate's thing is like so generic, she's not even making that choice. So she's not really putting any of her own thoughts into it. No, no like choices or values or whatever.
I mean, it, it's like more specific than like say something, but it's like not it's not nearly specific enough. 